Having read the book of Philippians this morning for our public reading of the Word of God, I want you to go back to Philippians chapter 4 for the last three verses, verses 21, 22, and 23. Now, I know that when we talk about either salutations, the beginning of a New Testament letter, and the benediction, the ending of a New Testament letter, there might be a sense of the temptation of the human heart to say, what are you going to say about these verses since they are the filler of the more important stuff, the very guts of the letter itself? I beg to differ. There is so much here that I was tempted to create a three-part series But I have resisted such a temptation. However, I do want you to know about two main aspects of these final greetings here that Paul gives these wonderful believers in Philippi. And those two ideas are these, greeting one another and granting one another. Greeting one another. That's verses 21 and 22, and then granting one another. That's verse 23. What do I mean by greeting one another? And what do I mean by granting one another? Well, the greeting that Paul gives here in verses 21 and 22 is the way that he, of course, customarily ends his letters. Thirteen of these in the New Testament And in almost all of them, without fail, except for maybe three of them, he virtually starts in very similar ways and virtually ends in similar ways, usually starting and ending with something around the idea of greet so-and-so. And in some cases, like Romans 16, he goes on for almost a full chapter actually mentioning names which is incredibly interesting because the Apostle Paul did not found the church at Rome. Normally, if you would assume someone like Paul as a ministry trailblazer, as a church planter, and who would get to know this core group of people in which a church develops, he knows them so well because he's been with them, he teaches them, he loves them. Well, of course, when he writes a letter to them, he wants to greet them. In Romans 16, a church he did not found, he's mentioning more in that letter than in all the other letters combined, more names than all those letters combined. And that gives me a principle. And that principle is this, that when you and I read so hurriedly through these New Testament books, particularly the Pauline letters... And we get to these sections and it says, greet every saint, greet so-and-so. If you were to read Romans 16, and maybe we shall, depending on our time this morning, greet, and then he gives all of those names. And if you're like me, you stumble over the pronunciation of those names because they're not names that you and I would readily use as names for people today, so many of them. And yet, what might be the principle that comes out of these greetings? whether it's at the beginning of one of his letters or at the end of them. Well, here's the principle. Paul is all about relationships. Did you hear that? He's all about relationships. For Paul, being a great theologian, probably the greatest New Testament theologian, and that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired him to write so many of these New Testament books, he was perhaps the greatest theologian, save the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, you would assume, because of being such a great theologian, that all Paul wants to do is to give them the theological facts. Here it is. Here's who Christ is. Here's what the gospel is. Here's what the cross means and a thousand more. Here's my teaching on heaven. Here's my teaching on hell. Here's my teaching on this or that. 
And all of that is true. But Paul also takes often even half of the letters that he writes to talk not just about theological facts and principles, but about how to apply those principles and about relationships. For Paul, relationships mean everything. Did I just read in Philippians that he says, I say with tears? Does he not say in Acts chapter 20, as he's given this sort of farewell address to the elders of the church at Ephesus there on the island of Miletus, does he not say that for a period night and day for three years, I did not cease to admonish each and every one of you with tears? There's such pathos in Paul, such emotion, such effect, such affection, because for him, relationships mean everything. You know, you've heard it said, and I suppose with uh, a little nuancing here and there, it's generally true. There are only three things that last forever. The Word of God and people and the Word of God in people. So, what does Paul want to do? He wants to take the Word of God, as precious and eternal as it is, And he wants to take those relationships as precious and as eternal as they are, these relationships, because they'll they'll be fostered and continued throughout all eternity future. And he wants to place the Word of God into the people of God so that the Spirit of God takes these eternal things, people and the Word of God itself, and he wants to bring them together so that you and I are worshiping in all eternity with a vast knowledge of God's Word with each other. And so right now, here's our practice time. We better get used to it. We're all going to be together. And we're going to know the Word of God as we ourselves are known. And we're going to be living in relationship to each other and with each other and for each other And so is it no wonder that the Apostle Paul says something like this, greet so-and-so? Why? Because as he says in Philippians 1, so-and-so is in my heart. You're in my heart. What What a beautiful phrase. I think about you all the time. I pray for you. I pray that God would fill you with all the fullness of God. I pray this. I pray that you would have an excellent outlook on life. I pray that you would see whatever is true and lovely and commendable and honorable, and I I pray for you, and I I, I want to write you. In fact, I, I even want to come and see you. I want to embrace you. In fact, do you know that the word greet there, look at verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Greet, greet, greet. You know what that means? Well, it's not just what we do. We greet one another, and we've got this really strange and bizarre tradition. We go up to somebody, and as we are about to interact with them, most of the time, especially if you're males, you stick out your hand and they stick out their hand, and your hands touch. Why do we do that? What, what, what's going on there? Or perhaps, especially those of you who are the lady folk, you'll not only greet someone endearingly, but you might also what? Hug. And you've even heard the phrase, ladies hug. Ladies hug. Why do we do that? I mean, what's, uh, what's going on? I mean, isn't it enough for me to say, hello, how, how are you doing? Uh, how, how's it going? How's ministry? How's your family? Uh, what's, what's happening in your life? How, how are you doing spiritually? Why, why do I have to touch them? Why, why do they have to touch me? In the midst of uh, someone's germophobia. Why? Why? Because did you know that that word greet might slip our notions of what greet really means in the Greek text of the New Testament? Greet is something like this. Embrace. Embrace. That's why we do what we do. That's why we hug. 
That's why we shake hands. In fact, back in 1991, 92 or so, I was privileged just after glasnost and perestroika, the Russian words for openness. I was privileged to go and do a couple of pastor's conferences in both Moscow and in Kiev, Kiev, Ukraine. It was a tremendous privilege, but I wasn't counting on something. I wasn't counting on the fact that over there, culturally and traditionally, especially among Christians, and maybe predominantly among Christians, and most certainly predominantly among male brothers with and toward each other, they gave a kiss on the lips to a fellow preacher. Now, that was really different. Oh, now, my brother Gianluca Pellutri, he gives me a kiss on this cheek and then on this cheek. And then I usually say, ciao, which can mean either hello or goodbye. And I'm used to that. I mean, I have no problem with someone, you know, of the same sex kissing me on the cheek, and that's a warm embrace. But on the lips, a little bit awkward, until I saw that everybody was doing it. And then I realized all the severe persecution of that church for the time that I was there for long, about 75 years. And then I realized this is their way of embracing one another because you might not see that brother in 75 years of heartache and toil and persecution and murder and incarceration. So no wonder we hug each other. No wonder we kiss each other. No wonder we're together in gospel ministry and we express that embrace even physically. Now this, this is really what it means to greet one another. It really is. And notice what he says, greet every saint. Greet every saint. You say, yeah, I've always had a problem with that word saint, especially those of you who might have been raised in a Roman Catholic context. Well, let me help you. Saint really just means called one, and it really means something like this, called to be God's exclusive possession for His exclusive use. That's what saint means, someone who's set apart, someone who's called by God as His exclusive possession so that you and I are set apart for His exclusive use. So, Take all of the trappings uh, and, and all of the religious trappings of how the word saint is understood and recognized and used in those trappings and simply bear down to what it means here and in other places of the New Testament, and it is this. Greet every fellow person, man or woman, who is set apart for gospel partnership so that they, along with me, are set apart for God's exclusive possession and use so that when we see one another, there's a special bond that we have that makes hugging and kissing very much all right. Very much all right. Look, there's no sexual connotation with this at all. Anybody who would debase this and bring it down to its lower base level of some kind of, hey, let's all just kiss one another and uh, all of that, Please, to the pure, all things are pure. You say, why do you bring that up? Because even though it's not here, do you know that there are five places in the New Testament, five places in which Paul not only says something like, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you, and by the way, the brothers here, probably Paul's apostolic band of of brothers you know, there's the Timothys and the Epaphroditus, right, and all of those. He mentions Clement here. He mentions a true comrade. He even mentions Yodia and Syntyche, and they've got to sort of work out their differences, but they've stood side by side with me in the gospel. And so Paul always had these sort of apostolic brothers, even those who were apostles themselves or those closely associated with the apostles, and they were errand fellows, and they were 
Christian workers and they were gospelers and he always loved them and had them in his heart and apparently he's now in prison in Rome and he has some brothers who are trying to meet with him and to learn from him and to minister to his needs and apparently they're around him and he says, the brothers, my colleagues in ministry, they greet you. They're with me and they greet you. Paul's in prison in Rome. He's writing back. Epaphroditus has taken this letter. It's being read and he says, all the guys who are around me, all these men and women who are around me who are, who are involved with me, Aquila and Priscilla and the rest, and I want you to know, they greet you. They embrace you. And there's no sexual connotation to this stuff at all, at all. Don't get me wrong. It takes a little getting used to if a Russian pastor kisses me on the lips. But when I put myself in his shoes... I know what, he's, what he means and what he's doing. In fact, there was one man, I'll never forget him for the rest of my life, never forget. I came there. I had a, probably a blue sport coat on. I had some slacks. I had a tie. All of them tried to show up with their best attire as, as problematic as that was to have nice clothes. And I was, I was in this big room And in this big room, there were these tables, very old, decrepit, and there were these curtains that were cordoning off some aspects of the room. And I saw one in which the curtain had fallen a little bit from the top, and and so it was exposing what was behind. And I saw what was behind, and it was a statue of linen. I remember... Glasnost, perestroika, openness. This is new, new to me, new to them. And what they'd done because of this openness and allowing the West to come, they had done everything they could, not only because of their commitment, but because of their deference to us, to hide all things Lenin and Stalin and totalitarianism and communism and the like. And this particular curtain had fallen a bit, and I saw this statue, and I said, that's... That's linen, isn't it? And one of them said, yes, yes. We're grateful to cover him up. We're, we're trying to, to go beyond our past. And then I saw right on the front row a young pastor taking notes via the translation of, of my teaching through to his own ears in Russian. And I noticed that he was really, really down on the desk, almost having his nose on the desk itself with a, with a little bitty hand trying to make notes of everything that he was learning. And I thought to myself, so strange. It's sad that he probably has such bad eyesight. But he's trying to learn. He's trying to grow. He's trying to soak up everything that he can as a young pastor so he can go back undoubtedly and sort of re-preach everything that he was taught, right? They have very, very few resources, certainly back in that day. And so after a break time, I asked the translator, could I, could I speak to that young man? Could you translate for us? And so he brought him to me, tattered clothes. And I said to him, do you, have, do you have bad eyesight? And the translator translated that, and he looked surprised, puzzled. And I saw him shake his head, no. And so then I said to the translator, what's he doing with his head so closely on the table? And he asked him, And here's what this young pastor said through the translator. I'm sorry if that distracts you. I don't have a pencil. I only have the lead. And so I had to take the pencil lead between my two fingers, and I'm running out of lead, and so I had to get close to make sure that my fingers could actually write out with the lead all that you were saying. And I immediately looked into my jacket where there were about six pins. And I gave them all to him. And he started crying as though he'd been given the greatest gift anybody could ever be given. And I said to myself, it's a strange thing for we who've been blessed so much to see those who have so little 
and yet are as grateful for such little things that they have. And when I gave it to him, he came up to me, and with his face just about as close as his face was to the desk, he kissed me right on the lips. (laughs) And it was quite literally, except for my dear beloved wife, the best kiss I've ever had. (laughs) And it may be right then and right at that moment, maybe right there, and maybe not since, that I think I understood maybe something close to the persecution of the first century church and the idea of greet one another, embrace one another. You say, how so? Do you know that Paul, when he says greet one another here, doesn't say what he says in five other places? And here's what he says in five other places in our New Testament. I can show you them. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Holy kiss. I've heard teaching on those things. Some of them are quite inappropriate. Some of those are off base. Here's what Paul means. By all of these, including here, even though he doesn't say with a holy kiss, here's what he means. Embrace one another in the partnership of the gospel. Embrace one another. We're in this together. We could be... We could be around the world somewhere else and someone is so grateful for our presence that they lodge us and they feed us and they minister to us even if they only have a small, thin pencil lead. And and greeting each other with a holy kiss is simply embracing one another and even kissing them for the sake of of the visible, physical expression of our partnership together in the gospel. That's what we're talking about. This is not just some closing benediction that you and I read over and over and over again. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, well, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household Yes, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's the end of this New Testament letter. Oh, no, perhaps it's just the beginning. Perhaps it's just the beginning. Because Paul will continue, the Philippians will continue, and if Paul can't get there, or if they can't get to him, then that little benediction in verses 21 and 22 will mean everything to them. It'll mean everything to them. And do you know what encouragement means to you and me at Bethany Church? You know what encouragement it means when someone comes to you and says, I'm praying for you. And and they're really praying. And they give you that hug. And they do kiss you. And you warmly embrace them and you greet them because it could very well be the truth that in God's sovereign plan, in His gracious providence, you might not ever see them again. Is it not so? So you better start hugging. You better start kissing. You better start embracing the partnership that we share in the gospel. Oh, family is sweet. Family love, family togetherness, But you know that pales in comparison with the spiritual bonds of a vital, dynamic local church who are greeting one another in Christian love because of our partnership together in the gospel? Well, it would be wonderful if every member of the fam were to know Christ and to be committed to you in the gospel. That's like the cherry on top. That's like the whipped cream and the cherry on top, right? But few of us actually have every single member of our family and extended family who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Is that not so? Therefore, the bond, the bond misses some vital elements a time or two, right? 
We're together. We're together for the gospel. We're together in the gospel. And so don't read these words, greet one another, and don't read those words, greet each other with a holy kiss. Do you want to know where they are? Romans 16, 16. Romans 16, 16. 1 Corinthians 16. You read that. 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 1 Peter 5. And I love what 1 Peter 5 says, verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. With a kiss of love. There's relationship dynamics going on in those phrases. Don't miss them. Don't just read words off a page. Greet one another, yes, Romans 16. In fact, turn in your Bibles to, to Romans 16. Romans 16. This is, this is that what I told you. Paul didn't found this church, but now he's in Rome. And now these people are attempting to minister to him, and he's meeting them, some of them undoubtedly, all of them, of course, because he mentions them by name. They're building a relationship. This is, this is incredible. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a slave, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. In other words, she was able to financially help the saints. That was her ministry, probably one of many. Verse 3, greet Prisca, that's Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelaetus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nurus, his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. He, he can't stop. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater or Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, he was Paul's amanuensis, greet you in the Lord. Gaius or Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Why spill pen? on paper with these words. I don't know any of these people. You know any of these people? Some of them have the strangest names possible. How would you like twins like Trifisa and Trifosa? <laughs> Paul loved these people. He even says about the Philippians, you are my joy and my crown. Relationships, everything to him. I would be worthless to you. Chris would be worthless to you as pastor of this, uh, of this church unless we centered on relationships. Do you know that some pastors, I would say probably pulpiteers or preachers rather than pastors, actually don't like relationships? They love to preach. They love to impart wisdom. But I say to myself, what do they do with these sections in Paul where he's talking about all these relationships? That doesn't mean that you're all about relationships and you never study. There, there are those who, on the other side of the equation, love relationships so much that when they stand up here, they're telling you what they think or they're reading the first page of the newspaper or they're doing something that isn't verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the Word of God. You say, well, that sounds like a tall order for any one man. Oh, it is. Believe you me, it is to be a pastor and a shepherd who, who has 
the kind of desire for relationships, to see how people are doing, to hug them, to be with them, no matter the night or day, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation. And it takes the kind of preparation to preach the Word of God and to know what these words mean and to know them in their context and to be able to preach them with passion and verve and the the kind of pathos that means that that love that we share for the flock is also the love we share for the Word of God and its import into your life. This This is Paul. He's closing this letter, but he's not closing his heart. He's closing his greetings, but they are always and forever in his heart. And he's embracing them, and he wants them, and he loves them, and he cares for them. And by the way, that's just verses 21 and 22. What about verse 23? What does it say? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Last words. What's the, what's the word that might stick out to you more than the rest? Spirit. What does that mean? That's just another way of Paul saying with your whole being. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your whole being. Every part of you, especially every part of you that is spiritual in nature. Your heart, your will, your mind, your affections, your conscience, all of that. That's a that's, that's the spirit. That's the, the real you. You've got a shell. You've got a body. You've got a tent. But, but the real you is your spiritual life, your thinking, your attitudes, your emotions, your passions, your will, your conscience. All of that is bound up in that phrase, be with your spirit. What else jumps out at you? Lord Jesus Christ? Most importantly so. And do you notice that Paul has no problem, no problem at all, saying something like this? I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is a, this is a prayer. We call it, uh, commentators, theologians, a wish prayer. A wish, this is what I wish. This is what I'm praying, even though he doesn't say, I pray, but that's what he's doing. He's praying, and he's saying, this is what I want. I want grace to be extended from the Lord Jesus Christ, which means he's putting the Lord Jesus Christ in the position of the divine one who is going to impart grace, I pray to you. And then in chapter 1, verse 2, he adds not just grace, but peace. Peace. He doesn't say peace here, but this is what we're talking about when we talk about peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. I know when we read it. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read it, and it becomes so familiar to us. But when you meditate on it, and when you think about it, and when you read it here, grace, and when you think about peace, you're saying, well, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, that's true, but it's also grace or favor that is extended to you and me when we are nothing but wretched, poor, blind, naked sinners in need of a Savior. It's not just, it's not just the idea of unmerited favor. The emphasis on the unmerited part is because I am dead in trespasses and sins. And so this grace that Paul is praying for them is that you would not only see this salvation grace, which I trust you already have, Philippians, but also that you would continue in your Christian life to see God's sustaining grace. God's sustaining grace. And by the way, this this idea of grace and peace, which he mentions in chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace, I've mentioned to you before, and I close with this. You know, when the preacher says close, that means... 10 or 15 minutes at least. Because you know what a clock means to a preacher. Absolutely nothing. But anyway, peace. Here's peace. Peace, the peace of God. And this might rankle some feathers, but, but at least give me a little bit of an opportunity to respond. The peace of God is not in the New Testament primarily and almost exclusively. I'll give a little bit of room for it. Almost exclusively but most certainly primarily not the thing that you and I hear most in Christian circles, and that is, I got a piece about it. I made a decision, and that decision really feels good to me because I believe I've got a real peace about it. How many of you have heard that phrase? I mean, every one of us, and we've probably used that phrase. Now look, nobody's going to take points off your spiritual life 
because you said once or twice or a hundred times, I got a piece about this decision. But that's not its New Testament use. What does peace mean in the New Testament primarily, if not exclusively? Here it is, the peace of relationships. The peace of relationships. I could show you a hundred, a hundred ways that this would be borne out in the New Testament. And almost, almost every time that the idea of peace is mentioned, whether it's talking about the peace of God, that's the peace that God grants, or we're talking about uh, the peace that Paul wants you to have or John wants you to have or Peter wants you to have. It's not the peace so you can make a good decision. It's the peace so that you can be aided by God to be in a right relationship with your fellow believers. So the next time you hear someone say, i got a real peace about it, take my advice. Say nothing at all. Don't get into an argument with them. Don't talk, well, my pastor said that that's an illegitimate use of the concept of peace. We know what we mean, but we're just using faulty terminology to express what we mean. Does God grant confidence as we make decisions in the Christian life? I suppose He does. I suppose He does. How do I know that? That's where the problem lies. I mean, is it a feeling? I mean, is it, a, is it an urge? Is it a, a sign in the night? Is it a, a, a kind of a leaning? Is it a, an intuition? Is it a, 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 a movement forward somehow? Do you see how I'm struggling? What, what does it mean, the, the, the peace of God? What, I got a piece about it. I, I want to make a decision. I need to of, of three options right here. I'm going to choose one of the three, and here's what I hope. The one I chose, I'll get some really good spiritual goosebumps from it. That's the best you got, really. Be careful, and especially be careful of the trump card. Here's the trump card. I made a decision. And here was the decision, and it was to do this or that, and I chose not to do that. And by the way, I had such a peace about it, it's got to be right. Don't argue with me. End of discussion. Well, so how do you know if it was ultimately right? Well, so many people say on the front end of that thing, I got a peace about it, so don't touch me. Ali, Ali, oxen free, my hand's on the tree. It's right. And what happens if in the experience of your life in the next weeks or months or years, it turns out not to have been the right decision? Surely you're not saying, well, the Lord steered me wrong. It's obvious. I have to blame it on Him. You often hear people say something like this. Well, it just didn't work out that way. But you were so confident at the beginning. You were saying, this is the Lord's will, this is the Lord's purpose, I had a peace about it, it was a settled condition of my heart, and I knew it was right because the peace was there, that confidence was there, and then it didn't work out that way. So let me encourage all of us, myself included, most importantly, don't use non-biblical strategies like that or words or phrases. Say, this is what I thought best. You say, yeah, but that lowers it from... God and His stamp of approval to you. Well, isn't that better? So that if you realize that it wasn't the best thing and that you made a mistake or a misstep in the latter part of the evaluation, you can say something like this. It was my mistake. I made the wrong decision. I have to own up to this, right? You say, well, where does that leave room for the leading of God? Does God lead His people? Absolutely He does. But I suspect if it's not based explicitly on the Word of God, on a biblical principle, on a biblical text, and you've got two good options, choose one, trust God, live your life, and you'll see on the back end whether it was right. Isn't that so much f- more freeing? You don't trumpet with, God is my co-pilot. God has led me. And I hear people saying it all the time, and I don't want to make fun of them, because at times when you do things like that, you intimidate other people that they can't question you or ask additional questions, and maybe sometimes that's really behind it. 
I want to sort of give the, the trump card so that no one will tell me that I'm making potentially a wrong decision. But remember, if we're greeting one another, we're greeting each other with a kiss of love, and you want to be able to say to your brothers and sisters, hey, do you think that that's right? Let me just challenge you on this. Let me encourage you. Perhaps it would be better to make this decision than that one for these reasons. I don't have a chapter and verse. I don't have a a Bible principle necessarily, but I want to encourage you to think through those two options. And when you do, choose the one you think, but be open later to saying to yourself, I should have chose the other. You didn't miss God's will. God's will can deal with two options at one and the same time, right? Of course he can. Now, One last thing about peace. Please be careful, my friends. Please be careful on this matter of peace that if it is predominantly the teaching of the New Testament that peace is the peace of relationships and the absence of conflict, please do not assume that if there is someone who's being held accountable for their life and their choices in the fellowship, even if it rises to a matter of church discipline, that that's automatically unloving and not peaceful and not the kind of relationship that we ought to have with fellow believers. Be careful. Because the Bible teaches in Matthew chapter 18 four steps. Four steps. Step number one, you go to a person individually. You believe that person to be in sin, and normally one of two things happens. About 95 or 98% of the time, That person hears your admonition, they repent of their sin, and they say something like this, thank you, thank you for coming to me. You know what you've just done? You have created a relationship, me with you and you with me, in which you've held me accountable, and we are at peace with one another because I repent of that sin. Not 95, 98% of the time. Praise God for loving brothers and sisters who come to us and say, I believe you've sinned. Here are the ways. I either see a pattern of it or I see that there are some things that you need to, to work on. And if you don't, it could go to the next level. And we hear that and we respond to it and we say, you know what? Peace has been maintained. Peace has been maintained. That's a part of this peace of relationships. But let's say step two, someone says, according to Matthew 18, I don't agree with you, I reject your ministry of admonishment, and I'm going to keep on doing what I do regardless of your response. Step two says you take two or three and you go and you speak to this brother or sister and you gather evidence. And by the way, there could be several steps in between steps one and two. Because maybe after step two, or between steps two and three, you're going and perhaps you even tell the leadership, and the leadership starts over with step one. And they go on their own. They've heard something with you, but they want to go and confirm and establish those things. And then when they go, they're going to go and go step two, and they're going to say, as far as Matthew 18 is concerned, we love you as your leaders, we love you as your elders, and we want to come to you, and this seems to have been confirmed, but we want to give you the opportunity to explain. And let's say they say to you as a leadership, I don't want your advice, I don't want your counsel, I'm convinced of what I'm doing, and I'm going that direction. And then you say, Well, but the Bible tells us, according to step 3 of Matthew 18, that if they are recalcitrant, they are unrepentant, they are not following the direction of the word of the Lord, then we're supposed to tell it to the church. And in that context, then, someone might raise a hand and say, I'm just telling you that when you tell it to the church, that means you tell it to the congregation, that's the church. And by the way, Matthew 18 has a series of what we might call contextually, if not linguistically, you plurals, you plurals, tell it to the church. And when you do this, and when you do that, and when you treat him in this or that way, or when you treat her in this or that way, those yous are the church, the church. So tell it to the church, right? And when you do that, someone might object and say, I object to this whole thing. I object because I think this is unloving and unkind and ungracious. And the Bible teaches us that it's actually the very opposite. It is the most loving and gracious and kind and peace-seeking thing to do on the planet. Because you love the person. 
You care about them. You want them to turn and return and repent. And you want them to say, you're right, this is what the Word of God says. What have I been thinking? Thank you for coming to me. Thank you for turning me around. Thank you for the opportunity for me to repent of my sins. I, I, don't, I don't want not only this idea of the church coming after me, I want you and what you've already done to come after me so that I can be one of those erring sheep who's, who's turned around and gone back into the sheepfold. Thank you. Thank you. And I've seen that, and it's glorious, and it's wonderful. If you want to see a recitation of this, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says that there's a man, he may actually be the man of 1 Corinthians 5, who was involved in sexual immorality, and perhaps with Paul's admonition of the entire church, they took Paul's admonition, they went to this brother, so-called brother, 1 Corinthians 5, and they confronted him about the sin, and when he was confronted ultimately and finally in an act of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 is a public disfellowshipping, he repented. And if that's the same man, and I personally think that it is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, here's the next step. You want to know what the next step is? Throw him a party. Throw him a party. Because he's repented, and he's seeking your forgiveness. And so it's probably the idea that the, the polar opposites have happened. What are the polar opposites? 1 Corinthians 5, here's the man who's in sin. Matthew 18, even though it's not explicitly stated in 1 Corinthians 5, is what they're doing. And when they do it, or they don't do it, Paul says, you've got this thing all turned around. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, you're not going after the brother. What are you doing? You're allowing this thing to happen in the midst of the church because what one person does, the whole church is saying yes to it if they don't come after him. And when that happens, I hold you, church, responsible for his sin. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. And so when the church finally gets it, and they finally understood it, so they went after this brother, and when they finally went after him as a whole church, he repents. That doesn't always happen that way, but that's what you want. That's the process. That's where it goes. That's where it should go, because the goal of all discipline is restoration. Restoration. And so this man apparently did repent, and the Corinthians went so far in the other direction that now they're refusing to forgive. And now we're saying, church, come on. The guy has genuinely repented, and now what you should be doing rather than living in unforgiveness toward the brother, you ought to be throwing him a party. He's repented. That repentance has been manifested as genuine. It's not just saying the words, I repent. He's begun to live in a repentant lifestyle. His immorality is gone. He's no longer doing that. And now we've got to throw a party because he has sought forgiveness and we are all extending forgiveness to the brother. That's what discipline is. And you know the driving principle behind it all? God wants a pure church and he wants peace to be pervasive in the fellowship. Peace, the peace of God. Do you, do you want to know what's so far better than the peace about making right decisions uh, between pretty good options here or there? You know what's far better than that? The peace of relationships. The peace of the body. The peace every time. I challenge you, look at the word peace all the way through the New Testament underline it, circle it, highlight it, and say to yourself, where does it, it exist and what is the context for it? And I'll guarantee you, the vast majority of times, you'll say, peace is because there are dissensions here. There are factions here. There are problems here. There's sin here. And so when all of those things are dealt with in the Lord's plan and by his passages, Matthew chapter 18 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 Timothy 5, even with a leader. Here's what you're doing. You're telling everybody that we believe peace is so important in the fellowship that even if we have to talk about someone publicly in order to maintain peace, we shall. We don't like it. I hate it with a passion because I never want someone to be singled out as though everybody else is staring at such a person and saying, can you believe that guy? I want all of us to see church discipline as this. 
but for the grace of God go I. And I'm absolutely committed to the peace of relationships in this church. And so through the tears and through the anguish and through the great difficulty of doing what we know the Word of God calls upon us to do, we do it when there is a person who says, I simply will not repent of these things. And when we do it, we will expect God to work in the soul even after we do what we do, in God's timing and in God's way, so that one day he will come back and we'll throw him a party. That's what I hope. And I've seen it. I've seen greatest parties I've ever been to in my whole life. Somebody who comes up here to this pulpit and says, I was lost. I spent time in the far country. And I've come to tell you, it's a wicked world out there. And I've come to repent. Will you receive me back into the fellowship? What a party. That's the peace of God. Let's pray for such peace. Bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, the peace of God. Oh, it is so necessary. It's the peace of relationships. It's the peace that pervades the fellowship when there is dissension and strife and sin and unrepentant immorality. It's, it's when these things are dealt with by your word and by your people. This is not just what elders do. This is not just what leaders do. This is what the congregation does to call a brother or a sister back to the fold. We do so because we are that committed to peace. And because of that, we pray that you would honor your word and bring repentance to the soul so that we can have a party that consists of grace and mercy and love. May it be so for your glory and honor and for the purity of the church and for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.